Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Welcome to the Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. Do you have a mate that doesn't seem great? Maybe their team is up, but they're still down. A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Dare Iced Coffee, a proud partner of Are You Okay? Welcome to the Conversations That Could. I'm Dermot Brereton. This is a show where we talk to people from across the sporting landscape and discuss issues surrounding mental health, the struggles, the successes and ways in which we can all support each other through the challenges that life presents. Our guest tonight is a former Premiership player for the Sydney Swans, playing 47 games between 2011 and 2018. In 2012, he won the Rising Star Award and was part of the Premiership winning team of that same season. After the high of winning a grand final, he suffered from repeated knee injuries and did not make another senior appearance for Sydney for almost six years. Seasons. While he did return to play at the elite level in 2018, it was a short-lived return to the game he loved so much when another injury ended his time at the Swans a week later. It's my pleasure to welcome Alex Johnson to the conversations that could for Are You OK? G'day, Alex. How are you doing? Not too bad, Dan. Thanks for having me on here. My pleasure. Well, post-grand final week. This time uh, nine years ago, you'd have been riding the high and thinking, the world is my oyster. Yeah, no doubt about it. It's always a mixed mixed feelings, I think, with grand final week, given, you know, obviously such a successful period in the first two years of my career. It was only my 45th game um, in that 2012 grand final. And exactly right, you're sort of coming off. Would have been, you know, Mad Monday now, I would have thought. And you probably think, oh, I'll go on and have a long career. I was only 20 years old, so... You definitely do reflect um, when this time comes around each year. You know, I'm, I'm really privileged to that I was there. You feel for the guys from the Bulldogs that obviously couldn't get the job done on Saturday night and whether they get another opportunity, who knows. So so in the afterglow of that 2012 Premiership, I mean, you learn so much from winning, you learn so much from losing, but at that stage, what had playing in the Premiership taught you as a person? Yeah, I think it. I'd, I'd sort of come in and um, – probably advanced a little bit quicker than what people probably thought. I was a late pick in the 2010 draft. I ended up playing 20 games my first first year in 2011. Played every game in, in 2012 and, um, you know, sort of thought this is this will springboard my career. I'll, you know, I'll come back in 2013 and become, um, you know, one of the premier defenders in the competition. And, you know, things, obviously, you, that's what your plan is. I'd planned that out and, you know, it took a turn for the worse at the start of the 2013 playing games in the pre-season and yeah it was a it was a pretty quick downward spiral even right now somewhere out there over on the other side of the country I reckon there's some Melbourne blokes just having a great time and and thinking this is the time of my life and it is but is there anything you'd tell them if you got to give them half a minute of just wisdom yeah I think the biggest thing is to you've you've got to cherish it I think it is it's one of those things that I probably thought well, we're we're a good team. We're at, in sort of in the right age bracket to go on and and do a bit more damage. And as you saw, you know Sydney, we got to the 2014 and 2016 grand final. So there could have been a patch there where we could have been really successful. But um, I think it's just yeah, really cherish it. You look at like a guy like you know Jake Bowie in his seventh game playing. Um, 
you know, he's, he's done unbelievably to come in and, and play and, and do that. But, you know, I think they could really build something pretty special here, Melbourne. So it's about, obviously, yeah, you want to take that opportunity now and I'm sure they're having a great time over in Perth at the moment, which is uh, which is fully deserved. But, yeah, I think it's just you, you sort of want to reflect on it a little bit and then, you know, look to try and build on it and, and fingers crossed. None of them sort of, you know, have a trip up like I did and, um, you know, hopefully this is the start of something for all of them to, to go on to. I feel comfortable interviewing you and a lot of our talk today will be about the hardships of football, the hardships of, well, gee, of life and what it's put on you and, and where it's taken to you. But I feel comfortable talking about it because you have played a premiership and that, I mean, we used to always get told, cherish the moment, some of the greatest players of all time, never got to play in premierships. So you've experienced ultimate glory and success that that the likes of Bob Skilton, Robbie Flower, these types of wonderful all-time great players have not had the the opportunity and privilege to experience. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I think that that's a small piece that, that I can be content with what I did in my career. I mean, it was only a short career. It was two years in a rush in 2011, 2012, and then obviously a massive gap um, of almost six seasons until I actually got back and played again. Um, so yeah, I am content with the fact that I am a premiership player, but I still, it's, it's hard to not let your mind drift to the, what could have been, um, and what position I could be in now, you know, I'd sights on being captain of that footy club and going on and winning probably two or three more flags. That would have been the ideal sort of career that you think of when you are, when I was that 20 year old kid, but and entitled um, to think that way too. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, yeah, the way it all started and my sort of the trajectory, if you were going to just continue on that path. But things don't happen like that. You know, I was, I was dealt a different set of cards that um, a lot of guys aren't. But in saying that, as you you know mentioned, someone like Bobby Skilton, I'll never forget the conversation I had with him after that um, 2012 grand final. He's like, I'd, you know, I'd give all my Brownlows back just to be in that position. So I am really fortunate that I that I was a part of something and, um, felt like I really contributed to that as well. Uh, it gets bandied around too much. Uh, you know, we talk about great players and, and we talk about great people. He is a great person, Bobby. Yeah, he's one of the absolute greats, yeah. One of the, yeah, just such a humble man and um, the amount of passion and love he's got for that footy club is, you know, unbe- unbelievable. Yeah, I, I think it was we, – we formed a, a fairly good – uh, bond with with Bobby when when Sydney moved into state and he used to get on very well with Alan Jeans so occasionally not all the time maybe once every three four weeks he'd come to Glenferry and he'd watch Hawthorne train and chat with Yabby after after training so we used to always get a chance to chat with him and just such a a, a wonderful human being as well yeah absolutely no doubt about it and I think um, I think Sydney were really good at that as well in terms of being really clear on where they'd come from. And obviously the move from South Melbourne to Sydney was, you know, hugely difficult for them and they weren't set up for it and all those things. Um, so, yeah, guys like that, Peter Bedford, um, you know, Dennis Carroll, Barry Round, these guys that, that did form what that club's actually about have a huge impact on, on current day players. Gee, you're aging me, mate. I played on some of those blokes. <laughs> <laughs> Dennis, what a great fellow. Yeah. Hey, um Let's take you back to the start. You were captain in your final year of Oakley Chargers. Uh, you went at mid-50s in the, in the draft. So if you're captain of the club, you're probably a tiny bit progressed than the bulk of the people in, in the team, and you get drafted, and there you said you thought you were a bit behind them. What, what was in there that you were ahead of your, your teammates predominantly, and yet you thought you weren't 
going to play footy straight away or league football straight away. Yeah, I think, um, you know, probably the just, just I mean, I, yeah, as you said, I was uh, mid-50s pick. I was pick 57. So, you know, 56 guys in that draft got taken before me and um, I never really I never really worried about it. It was more, you know, I, sort of, I thought I was going to get picked up. I thought I was a good chance, as you said, obviously being captain. So there was the off-field stuff that was going well for me. I was I'm naturally a, a leader, I'm pretty sure. And um, in terms of that stuff, it was fine. It was just more, you know, could I put it together, put it all together on game day and um, do that consistently. So, yeah, I mean, I was never worried whether it was going to be draft or rookie or whatever it was. I just needed to find my find my way to a club and then I knew I'd be able to go in and, and hopefully have an impact. I Yeah, as I said, I didn't think it had come as quick as it did. I played a few practice matches um, in the in the reserves for Sydney, and then round three, I got the got the call up and sort of never really looked back. Yeah, yeah, and you were bloody good early on too. So good size, good shape, could move very well. And and oh, and here's my education coming. A Xavier boy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, a Xavier yeah. boy. The coveted Xavier boys. Yeah. Everyone talks about. That's the Xavier boys. Have you been offered a job at the um, AFL yet? No, in terms of. No, because oh, oh, just because, because of the boys club, Xavier. If you go, Xavier, to Xavier, <laughs> you go to Xavier, there. it's like the Freemasons Club. <laughs> in in fact, I think the Xavier ex Xavier old Zavs is stronger in Australia than the Freemasons. Yeah, I reckon there's something in that. It's definitely they look after their own, and um, yeah, might not be too too long before. You know, I'm running the AFL or something purely based on the Xavier Xavier connection. <laughs> okay, tell us about the family. What what type of family did you grow up in? Everybody loves their family, no matter what. But yeah. be honest with us, where what were they like, and how they treat you and brothers, sisters? What's yeah, your background? Yeah, brother and a sister, both older. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm the youngest. So I was looked after pretty. So you well. were pampered. That's right. Took the easy road through, which was which was nice. You could get away with murder. Um, but yeah, mum and dad, really close family. We're, we're, we're still really close. I think that was a, a big thing for me at 18 to move to Sydney. is always is always hard. A lot of a lot of you know kids don't really go through it. They probably you know go to uni after school and spend probably four or five years there. Um, you know, just cruising along and, and still with their family. So definitely, I think moving um, was was hard. But I think it also gave me that sort of it gave me that real purpose that I was there to do a job. You know, whether if I was back in Melbourne playing for a club, I don't know, you'd probably get sidetracked by, you know, going out and all those types of things that 18, 19-year-old kids should be doing. Um, but, yeah, I think it just gave me a real resolve to go out there and, and do something and, and make the most of it. So that's what I tried to do. So we will cover off oh, quite clearly the in-between, but fast forward for a moment to the 2018 game, the second game of the season for you against Melbourne. Recall your mother going down to the bench when you were over on the bench. That was a pretty touching moment for everyone who knew your story. Uh, is, is your mother emotional? Is she strong-willed? Is she driven? Ha, that type of sport, what type of person is she? What type? Uh, what did she give you as her learnings in life? Yeah, I'm a super strong woman. You know, she was there the, the whole – she's been there from the start, obviously, but through all the ups and downs, you know, if, if something went wrong in Sydney, she'd be on her next plane up to make sure she was – sort of at my hospital bed after surgery or ready to do something for me. And um, I think that photo, I've sort of said this before, but I think that photo sums up our relationship really well. You know, the fact that she was right there, but there is a barrier. There's there's only so much she can do. Yeah. And that's probably the, the, the biggest thing is, you know, I've sort of had the last few years to reflect on, you know, what, what I went through in terms of the turmoil with injuries and career ending and all those types of things and the effect it actually plays on the people around you more. 
Um, I think, you know, I was probably naive to what I was actually going through with, you know, when it became 10, 11, 12 surgeries on the one knee and, and things weren't really looking good, um, I just sort of tried to get on with it as quick as I could, whereas the actual flow-on effect and the impact it has on the people around you are are big. So, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm very much indebted to, to what mum sort of did for me throughout that whole period and what she's done for all of us. I have had a couple of really nasty injuries, lasted, you know, one or two operations, move on. I cannot think of what it would be. I know what it did to me mentally. I cannot think of what it would be like to have six total reconstructions. Six. You've batted up five times in a row and probably were bat- going to bat up again for the sixth, after the sixth. That's an incredible set or, or, or willpower that you must have. Yeah, I think, yeah, a lot of people have, you know, since since it's all happened, I suppose a lot of people say, but, you know, how would you, how have you sort of done that? But I, I think it's it's just something you just do, really. I think you just sort of try and get along with things as quick as you can. Because it's, it's very easy to say, oh, it's part of the job, but it's not. No, it's definitely it might, not. It might be for once or if you're really unfortunate, twice yep. in your career. A great mate of mine, Tony Hall, they told him he'd never play again. He had his done. His teammate tackled him in the State of Origin game, 89, yeah. and, and tore bone away with the ligament. They said, you'll never play again. You might be able to go for a jog. He put his car keys in a safe and reorganised his life to just ride a push bike everywhere thereafter. And he played footy again, played to a, to a good stand. The drive of that man, the the drive that goes to want to get back up on the horse six times from that type of operation. I don't think, I don't think, you know, 99 out of 100 people couldn't have that drive, couldn't possess that. Yeah. What yeah. makes a young man that possess that type of drive? Stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think it's one of those things that I sort of, obviously I did my first name in 2013 and then the complications came after that. There were sort of four reconstructions that were – um, you know, underpinned by infections and different things. Yep. There was a time at the end of 2015, which I sat down with surgeons and they said, you shouldn't, you shouldn't play again. Three out of five surgeons said, you know, we think you're stupid. We think you'll be able to, we'll be able to get you into a position where you can walk and maybe run around and stuff like that, but you're not going to play footy again. Um, and for me, there was just, yeah, there was something within me that I just, I, I wasn't finished and I sort of didn't want to be finished. I think, I mean, there's still an element in me now that I think it's, Oh yeah, as I, as I mentioned before, I am content with the fact that you know I was able to reach the heights, you know, the highest of heights, and achieve the success I did. But there's still an element where I think it's unfinished, and it's it's sort of I, I never really got to fulfil what I wanted to, and achieve what I wanted to. So there'll always be that little that little hole there. I think that um, you know you try and fill with other things, but sort of doesn't give you the same passion. Or I don't, you know, I sort of. I don't have the same drive for other things as I, as what I did for football and having that sort of, you know, ultimate drive in you to try and achieve and try and be the best you could absolutely be. Um, but, yeah, it was – I think I you just – you park things a lot, I reckon, in terms of, you know, um, males as well in general. There's a lot of stigma around mental health and those types of things. And I think for me, I was naive. It was one of those things growing up. It was either, you, you know, you either had mental health or you didn't. Whereas now, looking back on it, and I've sort of you know sought help over the last couple of years just to determine things in terms of what actually makes me tick and why do why do different situations get the reactions out of you and things like that. And is it 
your sort of coping mechanism from what you went through or is it a sort of element of post-traumatic stress or whatever it is? I mean, it's in terms of the perspective piece is massive as well. In the in reality, yeah, I had a few injuries and things like that, but I never sort of threatened to my life or anything like that or sickness that people do. It just took away something that I really wanted to do. So, I mean, there's elements of loss that are on all sorts of scale, you know, whether it's loss of a friend or a family member or whatever it is by dying or is it a loss of something that you can't do and it's sort of taken away from you prematurely. So I think that's a that's a big thing that I, the last couple of years I reckon I've, I've come to terms with and terms with and, oh, I mean, it's a constant battle in terms of on that journey to being content with, with what's happened. So for a 29-year-old, you sound like the last six years and especially probably the back end of those last six years, you've learned more about yourself than you probably will at any other stage even going forward in your life. Yeah, I think so. I think no doubt about it. I think probably, um, you know, probably coming out of the game as well, I've learned more, um, you know, especially in the current times. We are COVID, obviously, it puts a standstill to everything. So there's not much other option except for sort of to sit there and, and think about things and reflect on what's happened and what's been and all those types of things. So I think there's a huge element of that. It's a huge learning thing, but I think it's just a, I think it's a learning thing that will continue on forever. And I think, yeah, I've learned a hell of a lot over the last, you know, couple of years or sort of six to eight years, but, you know, I still think it's just, it's a continual thing. And once you sort of stop learning, you, you may as well be dead really. So it's about that to try and keep learning as much as you can and explore those different things. I'm Dermot Brereton and this is The Conversations That Could, brought to you by Dare Iced Coffee. When you mate bottles it up, a dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? More with Alex in a moment. Welcome back to The Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. Mate not feeling great? A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Welcome back to The Conversations That Could. I'm Dermot Brereton and my guest tonight is Alex Johnson, former Premiership winning player for the Sydney Swans, but a man whose career was marred by injury throughout his time at the top level. Obviously, with so many hurdles to jump, so many obstacles in your way, the support around you has to be spot on. For a young man, a 20-year-old, and then at regular intervals in the ensuing years, uh, the senior coach, John Longmire, what was he like from day one for you when you first hurt your knee as opposed to the end? What, what were the moods and the, and, the, and the directions he took you? Yeah, I mean, he took me in all sorts of directions. I've got a lot of respect for, for Horse and the way he went about it. Um, he was my only AFL coach. And, you know, gave me my opportunity, gave me my first opportunity. Um, yeah, they were, they were awesome. And especially he was really good when I first went through my injury. I think it was something that he'd been through as well as a young guy and probably didn't fulfil the potential he had either with a couple of knee recos. And he reckons he was never the same after that. Um, so, yeah, I, he was he was awesome. I, I mean, throughout the majority of the time I was out injured, I, they kept me contracted and um, continued to believe in me and... It was always up to me, sort of said, if you, if you want to keep going, we'll back you in, we'll keep backing you in. It, it came to a um, time at the end of 2017, I think it was. I'd had a couple of one-year rookie deals and then just it sort of looked more and more unlikely that I was going to play. I made it back to play a few re, uh, few reserves games the back end of 2017 and wasn't great. My groin started to give way and other th- other parts of your body started to give way because you've you know spent five years 
so focused on your knee, other things sort of you let them slip a little bit. Um, so yeah, we had a few hard conversations. They delisted me at the end of 2017, and it was a, um, you know, it was a conversation that he sort of sat me down and was really honest and said, "Look, we think you're the you're the last bloke on the list that is close to playing AFL again." Um, and I mean, me being me, I sort of thought, right, and I wrote it off a few other people's names and said, well, hang on a minute, like, <laughs> I've played, you know, I've done it. And he said, it was like, yeah, but it's, it was completely different because you hadn't been through what you've been through now and now you can't even run out games and all that. And it was just this, I was I was running around with a groin strap on one of my legs at one point just to try and get through. So it cuts off all feeling to your leg. So the risk of doing your knees higher, but I was like, I need something to try and get through. Yeah. And the old Chinese heat patches as well were getting a, a workout and – you put them up too high. It's not. It's not too nice. But uh, so you're chasing the previous problem, the previous ailment. Ailment. Each time you went out there, if it was a knee, you got weak in other areas, the groin, and that would contribute to lower back. And you're always chasing that final injury, which leads to another one. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I think it, so. It, was, it ended up being yeah, 2017. They de- horse delisted me with uh, with Tom Harley, who was a football manager at the time. Can I interject there? Yep. Where were you emotionally then? Uh, I was, yeah. I mean, initially I was, you know, disappointed, shattered, sort of thinking this is the end of the road. And then, you you know, you start having those doubts as well. You go, well, if they're not going to give me a contract, then what what do we do? So I came back to to Melbourne, you know, during the off-season and sat down with management and things and said, well, do we start looking around? I mean, I don't have, you know... If you've sent the tapes from the last six years, they're blank. So in terms of trying to sell yourself to some to another club, it's sort of not happening. And then the, the thoughts go, do we, you know, do I try and development co- coach or something like that? Sydney sort of spoke about that. They did sort of, they did throw me a lifeline and say, look, if you come back in, in good nick, which was never my issue. I, was, I never really got out of nick. It was more just, can you run and can you run out of preseason and um, run out games and those types of things. So I came back for the start of the 2018 preseason in, in good nick. Came back with the younger boys, as everyone sort of knows now, the first of four years come back, um, you know, a couple of weeks, two or three weeks earlier than everyone else. So I came back with them and, you know, was winning all the running and was in really good nick. I'd, I'd you know, recovered from majority of my groin injury. And then I was, I was battling with a shoulder injury as well. I dislocated that three or four times in those games as well. And so it became one of those things. If I go to them, I need two operations can you do them? They're probably going to go, right, oh, yep, let's completely put a line through you, whereas they just put half a line through me, I thought, at this stage. So came back and, yeah, was in reasonable nick, but got to a point in got to a point in time when they said, right, oh, yeah, we'll give you we'll give you a one-year rookie deal, which was great. I was, I was wrapped with it. It meant I had an opportunity. And then I sort of tried to get through the next six to eight weeks, wasn't working, when sat down with the physios and said, oh, I reckon we need to just get this groin operated on because – I needed to release the, the adductor, yep. have an adductor release and a bit of a groin reco and went in and did that and then it was just a matter of trying to trying to rehab that along with your knee. Obviously, your knee's compromised. I've had five recos on the left at that point in time. So, yeah, you're just trying to get through and, and then, I mean, yeah, things worked out for the for the best for me but there's definitely ups and downs. I mean, you, you sort of, yeah, you look at it. I did my first knee in 2013 then get to a point in 2015 where surgeons say, no, you should sit, you should retire. And I thought, oh, I'm, you know, I'm only 23, 24. I don't, I'm not ready to. Um, and then you, and then you get to 2007 and you get delisted. So you, they retire you for you effectively. And then, uh, you know, you fight for a spot. And then it was, I mean, my, 
my number one goal was always getting back and playing AFL. That's all I wanted to do yep. for, for six years. And um, yeah, Chronologically, I mean, can I get that in order? When was the groin operation? Uh, February 2018. So it's – wow, that is a recovery from, from having that groin surgery – to then playing early seat, what was it, round two, round three, you played your first game back, 2018? No, round 20 was Oh, AFL. was he? was yeah. too, sorry. But sorry, I, played, thinking, I, yeah. I played half a year yeah. uh, in the reserves. So yeah, yeah, my apologies. Sort, of, yep. sort of a six to eight recovery um, process, I think, with yeah, a few few hiccups along the way as, as I sort of got to learn that recovery is Still a great smoothly. effort for somebody who hasn't played much footy to have a groin operation on the eve of the season and get back and play footy. And you're not a small, small specimen. What, what do you, you look like mid 90s, 6'4 or so yeah, around yeah, that? It. Spot on. Oh, well, there you go. You saw, <laughs> learn to sum up your players that's pretty right. quick when you're standing opposite <laughs> and you're only a little short ass in our forward. Um, and, and so that's a great effort for somebody carrying around that sort of structure to get through that type of injury. And then to get back, even by, I thought it was phenomenal if it had been round two, uh, <laughs> but even to get back that season is a wonderful, wonderful effort. That that must have been some extraordinary number of hours in the gym and rehab. Yeah, I think I'd love to. I probably should have taken notes in terms of how many hours I did spend in the dungeon over that six-year period. But, yeah, it was. I mean, I, you know, I'm really indebted to the medical team as well. They they did um, they did great things by me. Always, not always along the way, you know, different surgeons and stuff. I'd like to have my, my time again with them, but in terms of the medical staff at, at Sydney, they were great um, for me. In terms of, I mean, we touched Good on bunch it. of blokes. Yeah, great yeah. bunch of blokes. And I spent, you know, more than my fair share of time with them, so we got along well. And you you, you would have seen the old legend trainer Wally, who passed away. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah lovely, lovely man. He, yeah. he was there when I was there for really? the 15 minutes of <laughs> football I gave the club. Yeah, yeah a, a fantastic group of group of people. Though. Yeah, the people involved in that footy club are outstanding. Yeah. And I think that that's what make it, makes it such a, you know, pleasant place to be. So it would have become the norm to be the player on the comeback trail who's not quite getting there. But in 2018 – when was the moment you went, I'm going okay, <laughs> I'm yeah. a chance? Yeah, it's it's probably, yeah, I mean, you're spot on in terms of that. I mean, I think I'm sort of known as, you know, the, he's the unlucky knee guy. I reckon that's the sort of general um, title that people give me in AFL circles and outside of AFL circles as well. But, yeah, it was one of those things. And, and, and it's it's an interesting one because 2013, you know, you, you know you're going to miss 12 months effectively with a knee. Generally, that's what it is and – um, you know, everyone's like, how are you going? How are you going? And things were going okay for four months there and then had a hiccups and needed another Rico straight away. So you're already behind the eight ball. I think I didn't even get a chance to come back, you know, traditionally the first time. Um, yep. And then it just becomes a story, you, you, you know, everyone sort of is asking and then they stop asking because no one knows how to have the conversation. And I think that's that's a big thing that I, I think is changing. And, I mean, I'm not I'm not an open person either, so I struggled to talk about it too. It was easy for me to say, no, no, yeah, it's fine. Everything's everything's going okay, when really it wasn't. Um, but but how do you sort of broach those subjects, especially as a young guy? Um, and you sort of think, you know, who no one really wants to listen either. So there's no point in in talking about it. Was it frustrating seeing someone say, like like Nick Melcheski? I mean, do his knee and then he's back in three or four months or whatever that ridiculous time, turnaround time was. Yeah, that was my first year. Came back in 11 weeks or 12 weeks or something. It was unbelievable. So, yeah, I mean, you, you do look at that. I mean, I don't, you know, his, his knee 
was you know always getting looser and looser as with the last thing. Is I tried the last thing because of Mal though, because I thought you know I'd give it a go and he tried it and successfully had gotten back. And um, you look at what he, you know, what he was able to do. That was 2011. He was my mentor that year actually. So did his knee and then came back in. I think it was 11 or 12 weeks. Yeah. Back in the team, and then obviously what he did in 2012, we wouldn't have won the game without him. So you're sort of like, oh, well, people can get back and it can work. The difference in us is probably 10 years. So that's he's looking at that going, I just need to try and extend my career. Yep. Whereas I was embarking on my career. So that's why I went the traditional. So you had one Lars I'd, attempt as well? I had three Lars attempts. If you historically go back, as you sit now as a 29-year-old, would you participate in Lars' surgery again? No, no way in hell. So there'll be there'll be local footballers out there thinking, I've heard of the Lars. I, I remember Nick Malcheski got back. Yeah, you'd recommend d- um, depending on circumstance. Depending on circumstance, absolutely. But you know, I think you look at some of the guys over in the NFL that are having traditional recos and getting back in six months. So definitely is possible to the and medicine's getting better, rehab's getting better, and things like that. So you can get back quicker. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't go near the Lars again. I tried it you know, three times and, um, yeah, you keep, it was a different variance of it every time, but the, essentially it was the same thing, you know, putting a synthetic ligament in there, tried a couple of cadaver ligaments as well that would sort of bolster it. But yeah, I had a infection in there that just underpinned it the whole time. And yeah. in terms of, I mean, my left knee, I haven't done my left knee for the last surgery I had on that was 2016 and it seems fine. I'm not sure how much of an ACL is actually in there. That's another thing. You go and have a scan just to make sure everything's going okay. I'd been over to the states and uh, and done a training camp over there. Really successful. Went in for a scan when I got back at the start of 2017, probably or the end of 2016. And the doctor sort of sits me down and goes, "Oh, it um, doesn't look like there's much of an ACL in there." Hanging by a thread. So I'm thinking, right? Oh, well, what are our sort of plans here? And then the retirement talk happens again. Yeah, we think you should give it away. And I went and saw a couple of surgeons. They said, look functionally you're fine, scans aren't always accurate, you know, they're, they're obviously getting better and better with technology, but mm. the reality is there's something, you know, there's something there, we're just not sure, it's just not as strong as what it should be. You talk about the technology of, of science and medicine and, and even in these times, we still can't settle on it for oh, various no. things yeah. like the pandemic we're going <laughs> through. I, I can recall you mentioned the American techniques. Uh, for blokes my age, their mid-50s, there is a whole suite of players in their 50s, 10, who are now in their 50s, 10, 15 years ago, they took out um, a class action. What was happening in the early, early 80s was for the running backs, they thought those darn cartilages, you know, they get damaged and they're out for six weeks while they repair them. As soon as we recruit them, we'll, we'll put them in and we'll take all the cartilage out. And the running backs had all their cartilage taken out before they went on the field and then they rehabilitate them and they think, right, they can't do the cartilage now. And so there's a whole class action. About 10, 12 years ago, a whole group of running backs from the late 70s, early 80s. Now, that was the cutting edge medicine of the time. So it shows you historically we can look back and see what is right and what is wrong. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's that's the nature of professional sport is – the reality is with those running backs in particular, they've obviously seen, right, if we can keep them out there for four years, five years, and then not worry about what happens to them after, fantastic, as opposed to an interrupted four or five years where they keep doing cartilage. But, yeah, you think about that and bone on bone, running at that speed 
with that contact, it's probably not the ideal thing. So no wonder that a lot of those blokes wouldn't be walking around too comfortably these days. I wouldn't have thought so. I'm Dermot Brereton, and this is The Conversations That Could, brought to you by Dare Iced Coffee. When your mate bottles it up, a dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you OK? More with Alex in a moment. Welcome back to The Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. Mate not feeling great? A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Welcome back to The Conversations That Could. I'm Dermot Brereton and my guest tonight is Alex Johnson, former Premiership winning player for the Sydney Swans, but a man whose career was marred by injury throughout his time at the top level. What does life have for you now? I mean, it's, it's, it sounds harsh. A 29-year-old retired footballer who, as he sits opposite me here, looks fit and able and probably should be running out and playing centre-half back league football next weekend, even though we're out of season. Um, what, what's life holding for you now? Yeah, so, yeah, transitioned out of the game. I think that's something that is an interesting topic as well, the transition period. I reckon it's, you know, it's something you don't think about until it actually hits, and I had a lot of time to prepare for it. You know, I studied while I was playing and, um, you know, ticked off a few different things while I was going through it. I, I, I sort of had an interest in coaching. I thought about going into that um, once I'd finished, but I think just I sort of needed – I reckon I need a few years just to separate yourself from the playing and the, and then the coaching side of things. I do some coaching now with, with Xavier, actually, speaking about Xavier. I'm back there with <laughs> – You with don't the, have kids yet, the, are you? You're no. getting them free education. <laughs> Hopefully down the track, that would be nice. Um, just back there with a mate, coaching the, the first 18 there, and um, we won the premiership this year, obviously, under some different circumstances with Is COVID. you made a notable football uh, Sam Shaw, yeah. He played at Adelaide for a while, so yeah. we grew yeah. up together. Tall and, Backman. Yeah. yeah. yeah he uh, retired through concussion, so sort of similar situation to me, I suppose. You know, it got taken away from him. Um, a lot earlier than what he what he would have anticipated, but yeah, I really enjoy working with those kids. I think it gives you a lot of joy and gives me a lot of pleasure to to try and help them and shape them into into footballers and you know and men that will go out and do things and try and succeed and do the best they can. So that definitely is of interest to me. I, you know whether I, I I would like to think that I'll potentially go back down the AFL path. Whether that's more talent under eighteen, I, I get a lot of joy out of the under eighteen stuff. So whether it's potentially at that level or, or, or the developing side of things at AFL level. so It's amazing that that isn't it. And to just – I know that, that I've been involved in so many aspects of AFL coaching at senior level, not the ultimate coach, but skills coaching and technique coaching for forwards and the likes and playing and commentating. The most enjoyable – moments of Australian rules football have been coaching under 13s, 14s, 15s yeah. and 16s. It's the only thing I've ever done for free yeah. <laughs> since I was a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old <laughs> myself. Yeah. Because when I was 15, I was playing the under 9s, we got $6 a game. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, so I was getting paid. So from that age, yeah. 14 through to whatever, just coaching young people, it is so rewarding. Yeah. Well, I think it just strips it all back and takes – football back to the rawest of what it is. Um, you know, I think the, you look at the AFL now, it's, it's analysed unbelievably. There's 50 cameras in it in a ground, so you sort of can't hide anywhere, whereas... Idiots the, like us making it complicated. That's, that's exactly right. <laughs> Calling people out for doing the wrong thing. <laughs> but um, I think it's just, yeah, I think being able to coach young kids and they're simply playing it because they do love the game. And at the end of the day, it is a game. So you should... It, it's meant to be fun. It's meant to just be... 
you know, played on instinct and just sort of a random act of thing. So I think that, that does give you a lot of passion. So you've coaching Xavier, you, you're looking at something maybe down the line, taking that pathway, going to perhaps getting back to league football. What's the end game for you, Alex? What, what's the end game job where you see uh, this is what it will take me through the major portion of my the rest of my life? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not too sure at this stage. I think it's just still a work in progress. I've opened a um, opened a spin studio in, in Armidale, which I brought down from Sydney, Um Obviously not ideal at the moment. Gyms get hit the hardest with COVID, but we got it open for a couple of months there and now just yeah, planning the relaunch of that in November. Um, so that sort of health and fitness space, you know, it does excite me. It's, it's something obviously I've dedicated a lot of my life to Are you to good doing. at that spin stuff on the bike? Yeah, I don't mind riding. You'd have had yeah. enough practice. Yeah, I've had enough practice in the dungeon. I could, that's all I could do for three years when I couldn't run. So, um, yeah, so I got pretty good at cycling. Yeah, let's, so you're a good cyclist. Now, let me go through the others, and I'll tell you about some of the historical figures. So, okay, boxing. You would have done a lot of boxing training. A lot of boxing. How do you hold the hands up? Yeah, not too bad. I was horrific at the start, but yeah, with, with practice, <laughs> practice makes perfect. So, Who else was yeah. good during your time at Sydney Who in the sparring? Uh, we see sparring sort of went out the window because a few guys. But got, against the bag, guys got injured. against the bag, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think, guys that had Ryan O'Keefe was always pretty good uh, when I was yeah, yeah when I was there early. Paul Bevan, I remember that was sort of one of the last sparring sessions I'll ever remember. I can't remember who he came up against, but Bevo went absolutely nuts. <laughs> <laughs> we and had then I one, think it was called off. <laughs> we had one, uh, Ron Barassi did it, but we were sparring. Yeah. We put the headgear on. Oh, really? And Scotty Waters, uh, former St Kilda yeah, coach, yeah. played at Sydney for a while, and and it was that one year. I still say, he's pound for pound, he is the strongest player I've ever seen. Yeah, right. And he was only a tiny little tiny fella. Guy, yeah. And bench press about 330 pounds free weight. <laughs> and, and he fought Pete Philandia. And Pete Philandia, they took him to hospital. Scotty hit him that many times on the chin. He shifted his vertebrae in his neck. <laughs> Just moved it backwards. <laughs> and after that, it was, let's not spar anymore. Let's just punch the bags. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we've covered off the boxing. Uh, swimming. What do you like as a swimmer? Uh, yeah, I'm, not, I'm okay. I'm just okay. I was horrific before injury and then, yeah, had to do it a fair bit. I can but, remember those ways where you can always remember who was really good in the pool in your team and who was really bad. So you're okay. Yeah, I'm middle of the middle of the rung. Okay, who's who's the clubhouse leader at Sydney during that time for swimming? Kurt Tippett was actually. Wow. He's, yeah. Long big, stroke. Yeah big, yeah, big swimming build. And who should have come from Tasmania? Uh, the worst I've ever seen was Lewis Jeddah, I reckon. <laughs> And it was great because you'd go over and everyone, you know, you'd have to swim 40 laps. I reckon he'd do about four and sit there and be like, yeah, I've done my 40. It was like, how? (laughs) (laughs) You can't even swim one continuously. There's no way. (laughs) It's beautiful. I'll give you a name. We used to always dive in in the shallow end and swim through to the other end, the 25-metre pool, and you'd do, you know, kilometres of laps and, you know, in various sprints and middle distance. They used to get Dunstall for a Queenslander to dive in off the deep end to start because he needed to walk the last five or ten <laughs> and he couldn't to touch the up. bottom at the deep end. He is the worst swimmer we've had. It's it's just, he's, he's a sinker. Yeah, he just, he's he, straight to the bottom. Yeah, runs along the bottom. Absolutely. <laughs> in the terms of where you want to be, you've mentioned that was taken away from me. Yep. That must be a big hurdle to jump and accept that. Yeah, I think it is, and I think as as I mentioned before, I think it's a 
it's a work in progress. It's sort of a continual um, journey to to find things that that do fill that fill that hole. Um, yeah, as I, as I said before, I'm you know hugely passionate on the development side of things. I'm really interested in the mental side of sport as well. I think it's I think it's something that you know mental health is one of those things. There's still a stigma around it, which there really shouldn't be. And you look at what you know, especially in these current times, what's happening with kids and those types of things. I don't think you know Australian kids or this generation of kids. You know how you know, everyone, all of them are on anti-anxiety medication and these types of things at the age of fourteen and fifteen, which is just something that wouldn't have happened years ago. And I, I think um, you know I'm not I'm not opposed to medication if if that's what works for people, that's fine. But at such a young age, I think there's got to be other things put in place before they just go to a band-aid fix like medication. Um, so to yeah, it's it's an interesting one whether that's in sport or in schools with kids or something like that. But that's something that. I, uh, you know, I, I, I'd like to do a bit more research on. I've, I've sort of had a bit of a look at things around it and what sort of programs are in place, but but how you could yeah, continue that sort of journey to try and help kids and, and try and change the stigma around it. Well, for obvious reasons, where you've been, you're certainly a deeper thinker than most 29-year-olds I knew as a 29-year-old <laughs> myself. Can you tell me, you mentioned you ticked off a few boxes while you were at Sydney and did some study and some courses. Was there anything in place? When we talk about football clubs, they're great places to be in in adverse times. Yep. Um, I can remember a list of 43 at Hawthorne. We had 42 people either outside of football, either had their own business, a tertiary education, i.e. college or, or TAFE, or they were involved in charity work and getting experience that way themselves. 42 out of 43. And so yeah, we right. really encouraged it. So they left as better people yep. than when they walked through. The Sydney Swans strike me as an organisation who have great care for those people in their charge. Yeah, that was huge. Yeah, as you said, it was, it was either, you know, courses that they could tick off, whether it was building courses or, you know, whatever it might be, or going to uni and doing a business degree or something like that, they were big on that. Or if or if guys just wanted to do work experience. I mean, you know, plenty of guys just tried different things while they were while they were playing. So I think there's definitely enough time, you know, in the weekly schedule of a AFL football, you know, although it is a full-time job, there's a lot of downtime that people can use. So um, they were massive on that and, and, and massive on whatever it is, you've got to do something outside because it can't just be football that, that occupies your, your time. We're talking with Alex Johnson, a former Sydney Swans footballer, and this is the Conversations That Could. Thanks to Are You OK? Brought to you by Dare Iced Coffee. Dare Iced Coffee, a proud partner of Are You OK? More in a moment. Welcome back to the Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. Mate not feeling great? A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? So we're chatting with Alex Johnson, six-time full knee reconstruction. How many in total? Uh, that's seven now, actually. I did it again last year, just oh. running around for the old zaps. Oh, no. <laughs> seven so times. Yeah, seven and about, uh, what are we there, probably 14 operations, 14, 15 operations on the knees. Unbelievable. So we've touched on the mentality of how you deal with that. What about the lifestyle? I mean... Footballers, there, there needs to be a replacement sometimes. There needs to be a target, something to aspire to. What have you done in post-career that you say, eh, this is taking a little bit of the place of an achievement? What Have you sent it yourself anywhere? Yeah, the, I suppose you sort of do look for that. You look for something that can fill that void and a, and a goal you want to achieve. And, 
um, yeah, at the end of 2019 when we were able to overseas travel, which we can't do anymore, and that's a you know a something in the distance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where'd you uh, go? Went to went to Africa with with Campbell Brown actually. So we uh, hang on, just you don't a challenge <laughs> just to go with Campbell Brown yeah. anywhere, but to Africa. That's right, to Africa, and uh, fair to say Campbell was a fish out of water there. I think if you ask him, he's been to Vegas 24, 25 times, so he's very comfortable, you know, the casinos in Vegas with, with Grey Goose bottles and being waited on. Um, but Africa was an interesting interesting sort of cultural shock for Campbell, I think. But, yeah, we went over uh, December or November 2019 and, and went over and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, so in Tanzania there. And, yeah, it was something that I think it was after a few beers one night, he's sort of like, oh, do you want to do it? And I'd agreed to it. And then it was, it sort of, the time kept creeping up and I was like, there was a few few more people that were going to come and um, it ended up just being me, Campbell and um, Jan Cameron, who is, uh, works at Channel 7 or does some stuff around the around the footy with Channel 7, so I'd never met her before. But yeah, the um, the three of us went and, and did that and it was, yeah, it's one of the greatest things I've ever done. So how was it? What was it like? Yeah, it was, it was tough. Um, what you do? Besides well, each day. The, besides, how many days? Uh, six days we did it in. So yeah, you're, you're walking for probably four or five hours each day and um, getting further and further up. Every day it rained, which was perfect. We thought we were going in a dry time, but every day it rained. And in terms of the waterproofing measures they take over there, it's fair to say they're not great. It rained on the first day, so we were, were wet, wet completely through. Sleeping bag wet, tent wet, and all the bag of clothes that they were carrying up wet. Oh. Um, <laughs> So that was something to deal with, and then also dealing with sharing a tent with Campbell for six nights is an interesting, <laughs> interesting journey. Anyone has to go on. Uh, Does he but, snore? Uh, I don't think either of us slept a wink the whole week. Really, <laughs> it was freezing, and you just—it's oh, just—it was unbelievable. But yeah, it was a great experience. Um, and then to get up to the top and it to be completely snowing—it's what is it? It's five thousand meters above above sea level, so it's you know it's the top yeah, of 15, Africa, sixteen thousand highest. Yeah. Peak in oh, I was Africa. peak in Africa, yeah, and um, you know, to be completely the top, completely covered in snow and all that, and we got up there just before sunrise. It was, yeah, it was, it was a pretty amazing experience. Do you have any social media that you, you put those, some shots of that on that we can have a look at? Yeah, what, yeah, yeah, what yeah absolutely. Is it? What would what would people go to to look at those shots? Uh, just my personal account, just Alex Johnson too. Um, so yeah, there's a couple of photos of me and Campbell up there, and yeah, it was it was amazing. And then after that, we. Went down to Cape Town for for a week to. Oh, I've been there. Just just recover a bit. That's more Campbell style. <laughs> That's more Campbell style. Uh, yeah, Cape Town's a beautiful place. I've been there a couple of times, and that was uh, that was good fun. I've done Kokoda track several times, oh, a couple of times, and you worry that much about the weight that's on your back. You look at everything down to a box of matches. You think, tip 20 of those matches out. I don't want to carry <laughs> anything that I need. Did Campbell take that into account by, you know, did he stop taking up a little bottle of flask of something or did that make its way up there? No, it definitely made its way up there. I think it was a little little bottle of, uh, of Johnny Walker that we <laughs> we had a few sips of at the top, so... That was the necessity. The rest of the bag, I don't think there was anything else. <laughs> and I was lucky that bottle survived. It doesn't matter if that gets wet, so it was perfect. Yeah. And did you encounter any wildlife going up there that you saw, or was it just beautiful scenery? Yeah, I mean, the first couple of days you see, you know, a few mountain monkeys and these types of things, but once the altitude gets too high, it's just, just birds that can survive up there. And a, and a mouse, actually, we, we encountered a mouse in, in our tent, which was good. So, so besides the bottle of Johnny Walker, he'd brought up, Couple of packets of M and M's, and needless to say, Campbell's a grub, so he left them open, <laughs> left the tent open as well. We get in there, there was a mouse in there, 
And uh, it's fair to say it took me a while to get the mouse out. <laughs> All right. Now, I'm going to, before we let you go, I'm going to say, imagine you're sitting with Campbell and your mate Jan and say, where will we go next? When it opens up, where are you going to do the next one of those? Yeah, I, th- I think he's floated the idea of um, a-, a congua in uh, South America, Argentina. That's a that's a little bit taller than Kilimanjaro, but another mountain climb. Um, so, yeah, potentially that might be on the cards, but in saying that, who knows when we'll be able to get away again. Yeah. Seems like it's a uh, you know distant distant sort of future thing that'll, that might happen. If there's one person out there listening to you say, I want to take away uh, something from listening to Alex, it's seven operations on your knee, 12 in total, a, a, a myriad of... Under the of operations underneath the the surgeon's knife, it really plays with people's minds. What would you say to somebody who's going through tough times? Any any situation? What's what's the secret that's kept you going and and so positive? Yeah, I think the I think the biggest thing is, and as we spoke about it before, it's a it's a continual journey. It's a continual learning journey. I probably wasn't great at it when I was going through it, and I'm still not great at it. But it's just it's just being open with people. I think, and I, I think the you know, obviously, the, this shows in in cohorts with Are You Okay. I think it's a I think it's a huge thing. I think it's something that is continually changing the stigma around around mental health and people having tough times. I mean, everyone has tough times. It's just on different scales, but it doesn't really matter if if you have something that is only minor to someone else. It might be huge for you. So, I think it's about having those open conversations, whether that's with a professional or with just someone who's close in your network. But trying to sort of keep those things open, and it's okay not to be okay. So, I think. Um, trying to have those conversations as much as much as you can, and um, if you sort of see someone struggling, just sort of you don't, you probably don't probe or pry too much, but just make sure that they know that you're there to be able to help them and um, you know help them get through whatever it is they're facing. Alex Johnson, Premiership player with the Sydney Swans, it's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure chatting to you. Beautiful. Thank you very much for having me. If our conversation tonight has raised some issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14, and that is 24 hours a day. Or you can call Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36. If you've enjoyed this episode of The Conversations That Could for Are You OK and you'd like to share it with a friend or access the resources in our show notes, subscribe to the podcast of The Conversation That Could wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Dermot Brereton and we'll be back next week. And remember, when your mates bottle it up, a dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could ask, are you okay? Thanks for listening.